Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O dot C-O. Section 4 of The King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eva Stays. The Mask. Camilla, you, sir, should unmask. Stranger, indeed. Casilda, indeed, it's time. We all have laid aside disguise but you. Stranger, I wear no mask. Camilla, terrify aside to Casilda. No mask. No mask. The King in Yellow, Act One, Scene Two. One. Although I knew nothing of chemistry, I listened fascinated. He picked up an Easter lily which Genevieve had brought that morning from Notre Dame and dropped it into the basin. Instantly, the liquid lost its crystalline clearness. For a second, the lily was enveloped in a milk-white foam which disappeared, leaving the fluid opalescent. Changing tints of orange and crimson played over the surface, and then what seemed to be a ray of pure sunlight struck through from the bottom where the lily was resting. At the same instant he plunged his hand into the basin and drew out the flower. "'There is no danger,' he explained, "'if you choose the right moment. That golden ray is the signal.' He held the lily toward me, and I took it in my hand. It had turned to stone." to the purest marble. You see, he said, it is without flaw. What sculpture could reproduce it? The marble was white as snow, but in the depths the veins of the lily were tinged with palest azure, and a faint flush lingered deep in its heart. Don't ask me the reason for that, he smiled, noticing my wonder. I have no idea why the veins and heart are tinted, but they always are. Yesterday I tried one of Genevieve's goldfish. There it is. The fish looked as if sculptured in marble, but if you held it to the light, the stone was beautifully veined with a faint blue, and from somewhere within came a rosy light, like the tint which slumbers in an opal. I looked into the basin. Once more it seemed filled with the clearest crystal. "'If I should touch it now,' I demanded. "'I don't know,' he replied. "'But you had better not try.' "'There is one thing I'm curious about,' I said. "'And that is where the ray of sunlight comes from.' "'It looks like a sunbeam true enough,' he said. "'I don't know. It always comes when I immerse any living thing. "'Perhaps,' he continued, smiling.' Perhaps it is the vital spark of the creature escaping to the source from whence it came. I saw he was mocking and threatened him with a mall stick, but he only laughed and changed the subject. Stay to lunch. Genevieve will be here directly. I saw her going to early mass, I said, and she looked as fresh and sweet as that lily before you destroyed it. Do you think I destroyed it? said Boris gravely. Destroyed, preserved, how can we tell? 
we sat in the corner of a studio near his unfinished group of the fates he leaned back on the sofa twirling a sculpture's chisel and squinting at his work by the way he said i have finished pointing up that old academic ariadne and i suppose it will have to go to the salon it's all i have ready this year but after this success of the madonna brought me i feel ashamed to send a thing like that the madonna an exquisite marble for which genevieve had sat had been the sensation of last year's salon i looked at the ariadne it was a magnificent piece of technical work but i agreed with boris that the world would expect something better of him than that still it was impossible now to think of finishing in time for the salon that splendid terrible group half shrouded in the marble behind me the fates would have to wait we were proud of boris Avon. we claimed him and he claimed us on the strength of his having been born in america although his father was french and his mother was a russian everyone in beau arts called him boris and yet there were only two of us whom he addressed in the same familiar way jack scott and myself perhaps my being in love with genevieve had something to do with his affection for me not that it had ever been acknowledged between us but after all was settled and she had told me with tears in her eyes that it was boris whom she loved and went over to his house and congratulated him the perfect cordiality of that interview did not deceive either of us i always believed although to one at least it was a great comfort i do not think he and genevieve ever spoke of the matter together but boris knew genevieve was lovely the madonna-like purity of her face might have been inspired by the sanctus gnaud's mass but i was always glad when she changed that mood for what we called her april maneuvers she was often as variable as an april day in the morning grave dignified and sweet at noon laughing capricious at evening whatever one least expected i preferred her so rather that in that madonna-like tranquillity which stirred the depths of my heart i was dreaming of genevieve when he spoke again what do you think of my discovery alec i think it wonderful i shall make no use of it you know beyond satisfying my own curiosity so far as may be and the secret will die with me it would be rather a blow to sculpture would it not we painters lose more than we ever gain by photography boris nodded playing with the edge of the chisel this new vicious discovery would corrupt the world of art no i shall never confide this secret to any one he said slowly it would be hard to find any one less informed about such phenomena than myself but of course i had heard of mineral springs so saturated with silica that the leaves and twigs which fell into them were turned to stone after a time i dimly comprehended the process how the silica replaced the vegetable matter atom by atom and the result was a duplicate of the object in stone this i confess had never interested me greatly and as for the ancient fossils thus produced they disgusted me boris it appeared feeling curiosity instead of repugnance had investigated the subject and had accidentally stumbled on a solution which attacking the emerged object with a ferocity unheard of in a second did the work of years this was all i could make out of the strange story he had just been telling me he spoke again after a long silence 
I am almost afraid when I think what I have found. Scientists would go mad over the discovery. It was so simple, too. It discovered itself. When I think of that formula, and that new element precipitated in metallic scales. What new element? Oh, I hadn't thought of naming it, and I don't believe I ever shall. There are enough precious metals now in the world to cut throats over. I pricked up my ears. Have you struck gold, Boris? No. Better. But see here, Alec. He laughed, starting up. You and I shall have all we need in this world. Ah, how sinister and covetous you look already. I laughed, too, and told him I was devoured by the desire for gold, and we had better talk of something else. So when Genevieve came in shortly after, we had turned our backs on alchemy. Genevieve was dressed in a silvery gray from head to foot. The light glinted along the soft curves of her fair hair as she turned her cheek to Boris, and then she saw me and returned my greeting. She had never before failed to blow me a kiss from the tips of her white fingers, and I promptly complained of the omission. She smiled and held out her hand, which dropped almost before it touched mine, and then she said, looking at Boris, "'You must ask Alec to stay for luncheon.' This was also something new. She had always asked me herself, until today. I did, said Boris shortly, and you said yes, I hope. She turned to me with a charming, conventional smile. I might have been an acquaintance of the day before yesterday. I made her a low bow. Je vais bien l'honneur, madame. But refusing to take up our usual bantering tone, she murmured a hospitable commonplace and disappeared. Boris and I looked at one another. I had better go home, don't you think? I asked. Hanged if I know, he replied frankly. While we were discussing the advisability of my departure, Genevieve reappeared in the doorway without her bonnet. She was wonderfully beautiful, but her color was too deep and her lovely eyes were too bright. She came straight up to me and took my arm. Luncheon is ready. Was I cross, Alec? I thought I had a headache, but I haven't. Come here, Boris and she slipped her other arm through his. Alec knows that after you there is no other in the world whom I like as well as I like him, so if he feels sometimes snubbed, it won't hurt him. A la bonheur, I cried. Who says there are no thunderstorms in April? Are you ready? chanted Boris. Aye, ready. And arm in arm we raced into the dining room, scandalizing the servants. After all, we were not so much to blame. Genevieve was eighteen, Boris was twenty-three, and I not quite twenty-one. Two. Some work that I was doing about this time on the decorations for Genevieve's boudoir kept me constantly at the quaint little hotel and the Rue Saint-Cécile. Boris and I in those days labored hard, but as we pleased, which was fitfully, and we all three with Jack Scott idled a great deal together. One quiet afternoon I had been wandering alone over the house, examining curios, prying into odd corners, bringing out sweetmeats and cigars from strange hiding places, and at last I stopped in the bathing room. Boris, all over clay, stood there washing his hands. The room was built of rose-colored marble excepting the floors, which was tessellated in rose and gray. The center was a square pool sunken below the surface of the floors. 
steps led down into it sculptured pillars supporting a frescoed ceiling a delicious marble cupid appeared to have just alighted on his pedestal at the upper end of the room the whole interior was boris's work and mine boris in his working clothes of white canvas scraped the traces of clay and red modelling wax from his handsome hands and coquetted over his shoulder with the cupid i see you he insisted don't try to look the other way and pretend not to see me you know who made you little humbug it was always my role to interpret cupid's sentiments in these conversations and when my turn came i responded in such a manner that boris seized my arm and dragged me towards the pool declaring he would dunk me next instant he dropped my arm and turned pale good god he said i forgot the pool is full of the solution i shivered a little and dryly advised him to remember better where he had stored the precious liquid in heaven's name why do you keep a small lake of that gruesome stuff here of all places i asked i want to experiment on something large he replied on me for instance ah that came too close for jesting but i do not want to watch the action of that solution on a more highly organized living body there is that big white rabbit he said following me into the studio jack scott wearing a paint-stained jacket came wandering in appropriated all the oriental sweetmeats he could lay his hands on looted the cigarette case and finally he and boris disappeared together to visit luxembourg gallery where a new silver bronze by rodin and a landscape of monet were claiming the exclusive attention of artistic france i went back to the studio and resumed my work it was a renaissance screen which boris wanted me to paint for genevieve's boudoir but the small boy who was unwillingly dawdling through a series of posings for it today refused all bribes to be good he never rested an instant in the same position and inside of five minutes i had as many different outlines of the little beggar are you posing or are you executing a song and dance my friend i inquired whatever monsieur pleases he replied with an angelic smile of course i dismissed him for the day and of course i paid him for the full time that being the way we spoil our models after the young imp had gone i made a few perfunctory dabs at my work but was so thoroughly out of humour that it took me the rest of the afternoon to undo the damage i had done so at last i scraped my palette stuck my brushes in a bowl of black soap and strolled into the smoking-room i really believe that excepting genevieve's apartments no room in the house was so free from the perfume of tobacco as this one it was a queer chaos of odds and ends hung with threadbare tapestry a sweet-toned old spinet in good repair stood by the window there were stands of weapons some old and dull others bright and modern festoons of indian and turkish armour over the mantel two or three good pictures on a pipe-rack it was here that we used to come for new sensations and smoking i doubt if any type of pipe ever existed which was not represented in that rack when we had selected one we immediately carried it somewhere else and smoked it for the place was on the whole more gloomy and less inviting than any in the house but this afternoon the twilight was very soothing the rugs and skins on the floor looked brown and soft and drowsy the big couch was piled with cushions i found my pipe and curled up there for an unaccustomed smoke in the smoking-room i had chosen one with a long flexible stem 
and lighting it, fell to dreaming. After a while it went out, but I did not stir. I dreamed on, and presently fell asleep. I awoke to the saddest music I had ever heard. The room was quite dark, and I had no idea what time it was. A ray of moonlight silvered one edge of the old spinet, and the polished wood seemed to exhale the sounds as perfume floats above a box of sandalwood. Someone rose in the darkness and came away weeping quietly, and I was fool enough to cry out, Genevieve! She dropped at my voice, and I had time to curse myself while I made a light and tried to raise her from the floor. She shrank away with a murmur of pain. She was very quiet, and asked for Boris. I carried her to the divan and went to look for him, but he was not in the house, and the servants were gone to bed. Perplexed and anxious, I hurried back to Genevieve. She lay where I had left her, looking very white. "'I can't find Boris, nor any of the servants,' I said. "'I know,' she answered faintly. "'Boris had gone to Apt with Mr. Scott. I did not remember when I sent you for him just now.' "'But he can't get back in that case before tomorrow afternoon, and are you hurt? Did I frighten you into falling? What an awful fool I am, but I was only half awake.' Boris thought you had gone home before dinner. Do please excuse us for letting you stay here all this time. I had a long nap, I laughed, so sound that I did not know whether I was still asleep or not when I found myself staring at a figure that was moving toward me and called out your name. Have you been trying the old spinet? You must have played very softly. I would tell a thousand more lies worth than that one to see the look of relief that came on to her face. She smiled adorably and said in her natural voice, Alec, I tripped on that wolf's head, and I think my ankle is sprained. Please call Marie, and then go home. I did as she bade me, and left her there when the maid came in. 3. At noon next day, when I called, I found Boris walking restlessly about his studio. Genevieve is asleep just now, he told me. The sprain is nothing, but why should she have such a high fever? The doctor can't account for it, or else he will not, he muttered. Genevieve has a fever, I asked. I should say so, and has actually been a little light-headed at intervals all night. The idea, gay little Genevieve, without a care in the world, and she keeps saying her heart's broken and she wants to die. My own heart stood still. Boris leaned against the door of his studio looking down, his hands in his pockets, his kind, keen eyes clouded, a new line of trouble drawn, over a mouth's good mark that made the smile. The maids had ordered to summon him. The instant Genevieve opened her eyes, we waited and waited, and Boris, growing restless, wandered about, fussing with modeling wax and red clay. Suddenly he started for the next room. Come and see my rose-colored bath full of death, he cried. Is it death? I asked, to humor his mood. You are not prepared to call it life, I suppose, he answered. As he spoke, he plucked a solitary gold fish, squirming and twisting out of its globe. We'll send this one after the other, wherever that is, he said. There was a feverish excitement in his voice. A dull weight of fever lay on my limbs and on my brain as I followed him to the fair crystal pool with its pink-tinted sides and he dropped the creature in. Falling, it scaled, flashed in a hot orange gleam in its angry twistings and contortions. 
the moment it struck the liquid it became rigid and sank heavily to the bottom then came the milky foam the splendid hues radiating on the surface and then shaft of pure serene light broke through from seemingly infinite depths boris plunged in his hand and drew out an exquisite marble thing blue vein rose-tinted and glistening with opalescent drops child's play he muttered and looked warily longingly at me as if i could answer such questions but jack scott came in and entered into the game as he called it with ardour nothing would do but to try the experiment on the white rabbit then and there i was willing that boris should find distraction from his cares but i hated to see the life go out of a warm living creature and i declined to be present picking up a book at random i sat down in the studio to read alas i had found the king in yellow after a few moments which seemed ages i was putting it away with a nervous shudder when boris and jack came in bringing their marble rabbit at the same time a bell rang above and a cry came from the sick room boris was gone like a flash and the next moment he called jack run for the doctor bring him back with you alec come here i went and stood at her door a frightened maid came out in haste and ran away to fetch some remedy genevieve sitting bolt upright with crimson cheeks and glittering eyes babbled incessantly and resisted boris's gentle restraint he called me to help at my first touch she sighed and sank back closing her eyes and then then as we still bent above her she opened them again looked straight into boris's face poor fever-crazed girl and told her secret at the same instant our three lives turned into new channels the bond that held us so long together snapped forever and a new bond was forged in its place for she had spoken my name and as the fever tortured her her heart poured out of its load of hidden sorrow amazed and dumb i bowed my head while my face burned like a live coal and the blood surged in my ears stupefying me with its clamour incapable of movement incapable of speech i listened to her feverish words in an agony of shame and sorrow i could not silence her i could not look at boris then i felt an arm upon my shoulder and boris turned a bloodless face to mine it is not your fault alec do not grieve so if she loves you but he could not finish and as the doctor stepped swiftly into the room saying ah the fever i seized jack scott and hurried him to the street saying boris would rather be alone we crossed the street to our own apartments and that night seeing i was going to be ill too he went for the doctor again the last thing i recollect with any distinctness was hearing jack say for heaven's sake doctor what ails him to wear a face like that and i thought of the king in yellow in the pallid mask i was very ill for the strain of two years which i had endured since the fatal may morning when genevieve murmured i love you but i think i love boris best told on me at last i had never imagined that it could be more than i could endure outwardly tranquil i had deceived myself although the inward battle raged night after night and i lying alone in my room cursed myself for rebellious thoughts unloyal to boris unworthy of genevieve the morning always brought relief and i returned to genevieve and to my dear boris with a heart washed clean by the tempests of the night 
Never in word or deed or thought while I was with them had I betrayed my sorrow even to myself. The mask of self-deception was no longer a mask for me. It was a part of me. Night lifted it, laying bare the stifled truth below, but there was no one to see except myself, and when the day broke the mask fell back again of its own accord. These thoughts passed through my troubled mind as I lay sick, but they were hopelessly entangled with visions of white creatures, heavy as stone, crawling about in Boris's basin, of the wolf head on the rug, foaming and snapping at Genevieve, who lay smiling beside it. I thought, too, of the king in yellow wrapped in fantastic colors of his tattered mantle, and that bitter cry of Casilda, Not upon us, O king, not upon us! Feverishly, I struggled to put it from me, and I saw the lakes of Halley thin and blank, without a ripple or wind to stir it, and I saw the towers of Carcosa behind the moon, Aldebaran, the Hyades, Allure, Hester, glided through the cloud-rifts which fluttered and flapped as they passed like the scalloped tatters on the king in yellow. Among all of these, one sane thought persisted. It never wavered, no matter what else was going on in my disordered mind, that my chief reason for existing was to meet some requirement of Boris and Genevieve. But this obligation was, its nature, was never clear. Sometimes it seemed to be protection, sometimes support, through a great crisis— Whatever it seemed to be for the time, its weight rested only on me, and I was never so ill or so weak that I did not respond with my whole soul. There were always crowd of faces about me, mostly strange, but a few I recognized. Boris, among them, afterward they told me that this could not have been, but I know that once at least he bent over me. It was only a touch, a faint echo of his voice and then the cloud settled back on my senses, and I lost him. But he did stand there and bend over me, once, at least. At last, one morning, I awoke to find the sunlight falling across my bed, and Jack Scott reading beside me. I had not the strength enough to speak aloud, neither could I think, much less remember, but I could smile feebly, as Jack's eyes met mine, and when he jumped up and asked eagerly if I wanted anything, I could whisper, yes, Boris. Jack moved to the head of my bed and leaned down to arrange my pillows. I did not see his face, but he answered heartily, You must wait, Alec. You are too weak to see even Boris. I waited, and I grew strong. In a few days I was able to see whom I would, but meanwhile I had thought and remembered. From the moment when all the past grew clear again in my mind, I never doubted what I should do when the time came, and I felt sure that Boris would have resolved upon the same course so far as he was concerned. As for what pertained to me alone, I knew he would see that also, as I did. I no longer asked for anyone. I never inquired why no message came from them, why during the week I lay there, waiting, and growing stronger, I never heard their names spoken preoccupied with my own searchings for the right way, and with my feeble but determined fight against despair, I simply acquiesced in Jack's reticence, taking for granted that he was afraid to speak of them, lest I should turn unruly and insist on seeing them. Meanwhile, I said over and over to myself how it would be when life began again for us all, 
we would take up our relations exactly as they were before genevieve fell ill boris and i would look into each other's eyes and there would be neither rancor nor cowardice nor mistrust in that glance i would be with them again for a little while in the dear intimacy of their home and then without pretext or explanation i would disappear from their lives forever boris would know genevieve the only comfort was that she would never know it seemed as i thought it over that i had found the meaning of that sense of obligation which persisted all through my delirium and the only possible answer to it so when i was quite ready i beckoned jack to me one day and said jack i want boris at once and take my dearest greeting to genevieve when at last he made me understand that they were both dead i fell into a wild rage that tore all my convalescent strength to atoms i raved and cursed myself into a relapse from which i crawled forth some weeks afterwards a boar of twenty-one who believed that his youth was gone forever i seemed to be past the capability of further suffering and one day when jack handed me a letter and the keys to boris's house i took them without a tremor and asked him to tell me all it was cruel of me to ask him but there was no help for it and he leaned warily on his thin hands to reopen the wound which could never entirely heal he began very quietly alec unless you have a clue that i know nothing about you will not be able to explain any more than i what has happened i suspect that you would rather not hear these details but you must learn them else i would spare you the relation god knows i wish i could spare the telling i shall use few words that day when i left you in the doctor's care and came back to boris i found him working on the fates genevieve he said was sleeping under the influence of drugs she had been quite out of her mind he said he kept working not talking any more and i watched him before long i saw the third figure of the group the one looking straight ahead out over the world bore his face not as you ever saw it but as it looked then and to the end this is one thing for which i should like to find an explanation but i never shall well he worked and i watched him in silence and we went on that way until nearly midnight then we heard the door open and shut sharply and a swift rush in the next room boris sprang through the doorway and i followed but we were too late she lay at the bottom of the pool her hands crossed her breast then boris shot himself through the heart jack stopped speaking drops of sweat stood under his eyes and his thin cheeks twitched i carried boris to his room then i went back and let that hellish fluid out of the pool and turning on all the water washed the marble clean of every drop when at length i dare descend the steps i found her lying there as white as snow at last when i decided what was best to do i went into the laboratory and first emptied the solution in the basin into the waste pipe then i poured the contents of every jar and bottle after it there was wood in the fireplace so i built a fire and breaking the locks of boris's cabinet burnt every paper notebook and letter i found there with a mallet from the studio i smashed to pieces all the empty bottles then loading them into a coal shuttle i carried them to the cellar and threw them over the red-hot bed of the furnace six times i made the journey and at last not a vestige remained of anything which might again aid in seeking for the formula which boris had found then at last i dared call the doctor 
he is a good man and together we struggled to keep it from the public without him i never could have succeeded at last we got the servants paid and sent away into the country where old rosier keeps them quiet with stories of boris and genevieve's travels in distant lands from whence they will not return for years we buried boris in the little cemetery of sevres the doctor is a good creature and knows when to pity a man who can bear no more he gave his certificate of heart disease and asked no questions of me then lifting his head from his hands he said open the letter alec it is for us both i tore it open it was boris's will dated a year before he left everything to genevieve and in case of her dying childless i was to take control of the house in the rue st cecile and jack scott the management at apt on our desk the property reverted to his mother's family in russia with the exception of the sculptured marbles executed by himself these he left to me the page blurred under our eyes and jack got up and walked to the window presently he returned and sat down again i dreaded to hear what he was going to say but he spoke with the same simplicity and gentleness genevieve lies before the madonna in the marble room the madonna bends tenderly above her and genevieve smiles back into that calm face that never would have been except for her his voice broke but he grasped my hand saying courage alec next morning he left for ep to fulfil his trust for the same evening i took the keys and went into the house i had known so well everything was in order but the silence was terrible though i went twice to the door of the marble room i could not force myself to enter it was beyond my strength i went into the smoking-room and sat down before the spinet a small lace handkerchief lay on the keys and i turned away choking it was plain i could not stay so i locked every door every window and the three front and back gates and went away next morning alcide packed my valise and leaving him in charge of my apartments i took the orient express for constantinople during the two years i wandered through the east at first in our letters we never mentioned genevieve and boris but gradually their names crept in i recollect partially a passage in one of jack's letters by replying to one of mine what you tell me of seeing boris bending over you while you lay ill and feeling his touch on your face and hearing his voice of course troubles me this that you describe must have happened a fortnight after he died i say to myself that you were dreaming that it was a part of your delirium but the explanation does not satisfy me nor would it you towards the end of the second year a letter came from jack to me in india so unlike anything i had ever known of him and decided to return at once to paris he wrote i am well and sell all my pictures as artists do who have no need of money i have not a care of my own but i am more restless than if i had i am unable to shake off a strange anxiety about you it is not apprehension it is rather a breathless expectancy of what god knows i can only say it is wearing me out nights i dream always of you and boris i never recall anything afterward but i awake in the morning with my heart beating and all day the excitement increases until i fall asleep at night to recall the same experience i am quite exhausted by it and have determined to break up this morbid condition i must see you shall i go to bombay or will you come to paris 
I telegraphed him to expect me by the next steamer. When we met, I thought he had changed very little. I, he insisted, looked in splendid health. It was good to hear his voice again, and we sat and chatted about what life still held for us. We felt that it was pleasant to be alive in bright spring weather. We stayed in Paris together a week, and then I went for a week to act with him, but first of all we went to the cemetery at Sevre, where Boris lay. Shall we place the fates in the little grove above him? Jack asked, and I answered, I think only Madonna should watch over Boris's grave. But Jack was none the better for my homecoming. The dreams of which he could not retain even the least definitive outline continued, and he said that at times a sense of breathless expectancy was suffocating. "'You see, I do you harm and not good,' I said. "'Try a change without me.' So he started alone for a ramble among the Channel Islands, and I went back to Paris. I had not yet entered Boris's house, now mine, since my return. But I knew it must be done. It had been kept in order by Jack. There were servants there, so I gave up my own apartment and went there to live. Instead of the agitation I had feared, I found myself able to paint there tranquilly. I visited all the rooms, all but one. I could not bring myself to enter the marble room where Genevieve lay, and yet I felt the longing grow daily to look upon her face, to kneel beside her. One April afternoon I lay dreaming in the smoking-room, just as I had lain two years before, and mechanically I look among the tawny eastern rugs for the wolf-skin. At last I distinguished the pointed ears and the flat, cruel head, and I thought of my dream where I saw Genevieve laying beside it. The helmets still hung against the threadbare tapestry, among them old Spanish morion, which I remember Genevieve had once put on when we were amusing ourselves with ancient bits of mail. I turned my eyes to the spinet. Every yellow key seemed eloquent of her caressing hand, and I rose, drawn by the strength of my life's passion to the sealed doors of the marble room. The heavy doors swung inward under my trembling hands. Sunlight poured through the window, tipping with gold the wings of Cupid, and lingered like a nimbus over the brows of the Madonna. Her tender face bent in compassion over a marble form, so exquisitely pure that I knelt and signed myself. Genevieve lay in the shadow under the Madonna, and yet, through her white arms, I saw a pale azure vein and beneath her softly clasped hands the fold of her dress were tinged with rose, as if from some faint warm light within her breast. Bending with a breaking heart, I touched the marble drapery with my lips, then crept back into the silent house. A maid came and brought me a letter, and I sat down in the little conservatory to read it, but as I was about to break the seal, seeing the girl lingering, I asked her what she wanted. She stammered something about a white rabbit that had been caught in the house and asked what should be done with it. I told her to let it loose in the walled garden behind the house, and I opened my letter. It was from Jack, so incoherent that I thought he must have lost his reason. It was nothing but a series of prayers to me not to leave the house until he could get back. He could not tell me why. There were the dreams, he said. He could explain nothing, but he was sure I must not leave the house in Rue St. Cecile. 
As I finished reading, I raised my eyes and saw the same maidservant standing in the doorway, holding a glass dish in which two goldfish were swimming. Put them back into the tank and tell me what you mean by interrupting me, I said. With a half-suppressed whimper, she emptied water and fish into her aquarium at the end of the conservatory, and turning to me asked my permission to leave my service. She said people were playing tricks on her, evidently with the design of getting her in trouble. The marble rabbit had been stolen, and a live one had been brought into the house. Two beautiful marble fish were gone, and she had found those two common live things flopping on the dining-room floor. I reassured her and sent her away, saying I would look about myself. I went into the studio. There was nothing there but my canvases and some casts, except the marble of the Easter lily. I saw it on a table across the room. Then I strode angrily over to it, but the flower I lifted from the table was fresh and fragile and filled the air with perfume. Then, suddenly, I comprehended, and sprang through the hallway to the marble room. The doors flew open, the sunlight streamed into my face, and through it, in a heavenly glory, the Madonna smiled as Genevieve lifted her flushed face from her marble couch and opened her sleepy eyes. End of section 4 Section 5 of The King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eva Stays In the Court of the Dragon O thou, who burnst in heart for those who burn in hell, whose fire thyself shall feed in turn, how long be crying, Mercy on them, God! Why, who art thou to teach and he to learn? In the church of St. Barnabé, vespers were over. The clergy left the altar. The little choir boys flocked across the chancel and settled in the stalls. A Sui, in rich uniform, marched down the south aisle, sounding his staff at every fourth step on the stone pavement. Behind him came that eloquent preacher and good man, Monsieur C. My chair was near the chancel rail. I now turned towards the west end of the church. The other people between the altar and the pulpit turned too. There was a little scraping and wrestling while the congregation seated itself again. The preacher mounted the pulpit stairs, and the organ voluntarily ceased. I had always found the organ playing at St. Barnabé highly interesting, learned, and scientific it was, too much so for my small knowledge, but expressing a vivid, if cold, intelligence. Moreover, it possessed the French quality of taste, taste reigned supreme, self-controlled, dignified, and reticent. Today, however, from the first court I had felt a change for the worse, a sinister change. During Vespers it had been chiefly the chancel organ which supported the beautiful choir, but now, and again, quite wantonly as it seemed, from the west gallery where the great organ stands, a heavy hand had struck across the church at the serene peace of those clear voices. It was something more than harsh and dissonant and it betrayed no lack of skill. As it recurred again and again, it set me thinking of what my architect's books say about the custom in early times to consecrate the choir as soon as it was built, 
and that the name being finished sometimes half a century later often did not get any blessing at all i wondered idly if that had been the case at st barnabay and whether something not usually supposed to be at home in a christian church might have entered undetected and taken possession of the west gallery i had read of such things happening too but not in works on architecture then i remembered that st barnabay was not much more than a hundred years old and smiled at the incongruous association of medieval superstitions with that cheerful little piece of eighteenth-century rococo but now vespers were over and there should have followed a few quiet chords fit to accompany meditation while we waited for the sermon instead of that the discord at the lower end of the church broke out with the departure of the clergy as if now nothing could control it i belong to those children of an older and simpler generation who do not love to seek psychological subtleties in art and i have ever refused to find in music anything more than melody and harmony but i felt that in the labyrinth of sounds now issuing from that instrument there was something being hunted up and down the pedals chased him while the manuals blared approval poor devil whoever he was there seemed small hope of escape my nervous annoyance changed to anger who was doing this how dare he play like that in midst of divine service i glanced at the people near me not one appeared to be in the least disturbed the placid brows of the kneeling nuns still turned toward the altar lost none of their devout abstraction under the pale shadow of the white headdress the fashionable lady beside me was looking expectantly at monsieur c for all her face betrayed the organ might have been singing an ave maria but now at last the preacher had made the sign of the cross and commanded silence i turned to him gladly thus far i had not found the rest i had counted on when i entered st barnabé that afternoon i was worn out by three nights of physical suffering and mental trouble the last had been the worst and it was an exhausted body and a mind benumbed and yet acutely sensitive which i had brought to my favorite church for healing for i had been reading the king in yellow the sun arises they gather themselves together and lay them down in their dens monsieur c delivered his text in a calm voice glancing quietly over the congregation my eyes turned i knew not why toward the lower end of the church the organist was coming from behind his pipes and passing along the gallery on his way out i saw him disappear by a small door that leads to some stairs which descend directly to the street he was a slender man and his face was as white as his coat was black good riddance i thought with your wicked music i hope your assistant will play the closing voluntary with a feeling of relief with a deep calm feeling of relief i turned back to the mild face in the pulpit and settled myself to listen here at last was the ease of mind i longed for my children said the preacher one truth the human soul finds hardest of all to learn that it has nothing to fear it can never be made to see that nothing can really harm it curious doctrine i thought for a catholic preach let's see how he will reconcile that with the fathers
nothing can really harm the soul he went on in his coolest clearest tones because but i never heard the rest my eye left his face i knew not for what reason and sought the lower end of the church the same man was coming out from behind the organ and was passing along the gallery the same way but there had not been time for him to return and if he had returned i must have seen him i felt a faint chill and my heart sank and yet his going and coming were no affair of mine i looked at him i could not turn away from his black figure and his white face when he was exactly opposite to me he turned and sent across the church straight into my eyes a look of hate intense and deadly i had never seen any other like it would to god i might never see it again then he disappeared by the same door through which i had watched him depart less than sixty seconds before i sat and tried to collect my thoughts my first sensation was like that of a very young child badly hurt when it catches its breath before crying out to suddenly find myself the object of such hatred was exquisitely painful and this man was an utter stranger why should he hate me so me whom he had never seen before for the moment all other sensation was merged in this one pang even fear was subordinate to grief and for that moment i never doubted but in the next i began to reason and a sense of the incongruous came to my aid as i have said st barnabé is a modern church it is small and well lighted one sees over all of it almost at a glance the organ gallery gets a strong white light from a row of long windows in the clear story which have not even coloured glass the pulpit being in the middle of the church it followed that when i turned toward it whatever moved at west end could not fail to attract my eye when the organist passed it was no wonder that i saw him i had simply miscalculated the interval between his first and second passing he had come in that last time by the other side door as for the look which had so upset me there had been no such thing and i was a nervous fool i looked about this was a likely place to harbour supernatural horrors that clear-cut reasonable face of monsieur c his collected manner and easy graceful gestures were they not just a little discouraging to the notion of a gruesome mystery i glanced above his head and almost laughed that flyaway lady supporting one corner of the pulpit canopy which looked like a fringed damask tablecloth in a high wind at the first attempt of a basilisk to pose up there in the organ loft she would point her gold trumpet at him and puff him out of existence i laughed to myself over this conceit which at the time i thought very amusing and sat and chaffed myself and everything else from the old harpy outside the railing who had made me pay ten centimes for my chair before she would let me in she was more like a basilisk i told myself than was my organist with the anemic complexion from that grim old dame to yes alas monsieur c himself for all devoteness had fled i had never yet done such a thing in my life but now i felt a desire to mock as for the sermon i could not hear a word of it for the jingle in my ears of the skirts of st paul have reached having preached us those six lent lectures more unctuous than ever he preached 
keeping time to the most fantastic and irreverent thoughts. It was no use to sit there any longer. I must get out of doors and shake myself free from this hateful mood. I knew the rudeness I was committing, but still I rose and left the church. A spring sun was shining on the Rue St. Honoré as I ran down the church steps. On one corner stood a barrel full of yellow jonquils, pale violets from the Riviera, dark Russian violets, and white Roman hyacinths, and a golden cloud of mimosa. The street was full of Sunday pleasure-seekers. I swung my cane and laughed with the rest. Some one overtook and passed me. He never turned, but there was the same deadly malignity in his white profile that there had been in his eyes. I watched him as long as I could see him. His lip back expressed the same menace. Every step that carried him away from me seemed to bear him on some errand connected with my destruction. I was creeping along, my feet almost refusing to move. There began to dawn in me a sense of responsibility for something long forgotten. It began to seem as if I deserved that which he threatened. It reached a long way back, a long, long way back. It had lain dormant all these years. It was there, though, and presently it would rise and confront me, but I would try to escape, and I stumbled as best I could into the Rue de Rivioli across the Place de la Concorde, and on to the quay. I looked with sick eyes upon the sun, shining through the white foam of the fountain, pouring over the backs of the dusty bronze river gods. On the far white arc, a structure of amethyst mist, on the countless vistas of grey stems and bare branches faintly green. Then I saw him again, coming down one of those chestnut alleys, of the Corps Lorien. I left the riverside, plunged blindly across to the Champs-de-Lysees, and turned toward the Arc. The setting sun was sending its rays along the green sward of the Rond Point. In the full glow he sat on a bench, children and young mothers all about him. He was nothing but a Sunday lounger, like the others, like myself. I said the words almost aloud, and all the while I gazed on the malignant hatred of his face. But he was not looking at me. I crept past and dragged my leaden feet up the avenue. I knew that every time I met him brought him nearer to the accomplishment of his purpose and my fate, and still I tried to save myself. The last rays of sunset were pouring through the great arc. I passed under it and met him face to face. I had left him far down the Champs-de-Lysees, and yet he came in with a stream of people who were returning from the Bois de la Bouillon. He came so close that he brushed me. His slender frame felt like iron inside its loose black covering. He showed no signs of haste, nor of fatigue, nor any human feeling. His whole being expressed one thing the will, and the power to work me evil. In anguish, I watched him where he went down the broad, crowded avenue. That was all flashing with wheels and trappings of horses and the helmets of the guard Republican. He was soon lost to sight. Then I turned and fled into the bras, 
and far out beyond it. I know not where I went, but after a long while, as it seemed to me, night had fallen, and I had found myself sitting at a table before a small café. I had wandered back into the bra. It was hours now since I had seen him. Physical fatigue and mental suffering had left me no power to think or feel. I was tired. So tired. I longed to hide away in my own den. I resolved to go home. But that was a long way off. I lived in the court of the dragon, a narrow passage that leads from the Rue de Rennes to the Rue du Dragon. It was an impasse, traversable only for foot passengers. Over the entrance on the Rue de Rennes is a balcony supported by an iron dragon. Within the court, tall old houses rise on either side and close the ends that give on the two streets, huge gates, swung back during the day into the walls of the deep archways close this court after midnight and one must enter by then ringing at a certain small doors on the side the sunken pavements collects unsavory pools steeped stairways pitch down to doors that open on the court the ground floors are occupied by shops of second-hand dealers and by iron workers all day long the place rings with the clink of hammers and the clang of metal bars. Unsavory as it is below, there is a cheerfulness and comfort and hard, honest work above. Five flights up are the ateliers of architects, painters, and the hiding place of middle-aged students like myself who want to live alone. When I first came here to live, I was young and not alone. I had to walk a while before any conveyance appeared, but, at last, when I had almost reached the Arc de Triomphe again, an empty cab came along and I took it. From the Arc to the Rue de Rennes is a drive of more than half an hour, especially when one is conveyed by a tired cab horse that has been at the mercy of Sunday fete-makers. There had been time before I passed under the dragon's wings to meet my enemy over and over again but I never saw him once, and now refuge was close at hand. Before the wide gateway a small mob of children were playing. Our concierge and his wife walked among them, with their black poodle keeping order. Some couples were waltzing on the sidewalk. I returned their greetings and hurried in. All the inhabitants of the court had trooped out into the street. The place was quite deserted, lighted by a few lanterns hung high up in which the glass burned dimly. My apartment was at the top of a house, halfway down the court, reached by a staircase that descended almost into the street, with only a bit of passageway intervening. I set my foot on the threshold of the open door. The friendly old ruinous stairs rose before me, leading up to rest and shelter. Looking back over my shoulder, I saw him, ten paces off. He must have entered the court with me. He was coming straight on, neither slowly nor swiftly, but straight on to me. And now he was looking at me. For the first time since our eyes encountered across the church, they met now again, and I knew that the time had come. Retreating backward, down the court, I faced him. I meant to escape by the entrance of the Rue du Dragon. His eyes told me I never should escape. It seemed ages while we were going, I retreating, he advancing, down the court in perfect silence. 
but at last I felt the shadow of the archway, and the next step brought me within it. I had meant to turn here and spring through into the street, but the shadow was not that of an archway. It was that of a vault. The great doors on the rooted dragon were closed. I felt this by the blackness which surrounded me, and at the same instant I read it in his face. How his face gleamed in the darkness, drawing swiftly nearer. The deep vaults, the huge closed doors, their cold iron clamps were all on his side. The thing which he had threatened had arrived. It gathered and bore down on me from the fathomless shadows. The point from which it would strike was his infernal eyes. Hopeless. I set my back against the barred doors and defied him. There was a scraping of chairs on the stone floor and a rustling as the congregation rose. I could hear the Swede's staff in the south aisle preceding Monsieur C. to the sacristy. The kneeling nuns, roused from their devout abstraction, made their reverence and went away. The fashionable lady, my neighbor, rose also, with graceful reserve, as she departed her glance just flitted over my face in disapproval. Half dead, or so it seemed to me, yet intensely alive to every trifle, I sat among the leisurely moving crowd, then rose too and went to the door. I had slept through the sermon. Had I slept through the sermon? I looked up and saw him passing along the gallery to his place. Only his side I saw. The thin, bent arm in its black covering looked like one of those devilish, nameless instruments which lie in the disused torture chambers of medieval castles. But I had escaped him, though his eyes had said I should not. Had I escaped him? That which gives him the power over me came back out of oblivion, where I had hoped to keep it, for I knew him now, death and the awful abode of lost souls, whither my weakness long ago had sent him. They had changed him for every other eye, but not for mine. I had recognized him almost from the first. I had never doubted what he was come to do, and now I knew while my body sat safe in the cheerful little church. He had been hunting my soul in the court of the dragon. I crept to the door. The organ broke out overhead with a blare. A dazzling light filled the church, blotting the altar from my eyes. The people faded away. The arches, the vaulted roof vanished. I raised my seared eyes to the fathomless glare, and I saw the black stars hanging in the heavens, and the wet winds from the lake of Halley chilled my face. And now, far away, over leagues of tossing cloud waves, I saw the moon dripping with spray, and beyond, the towers of Carcosa rose behind the moon. Death, and the awful abode of lost souls, whither my weakness long ago had set him, had changed him for every other eye but mine. Now I heard his voice, rising, swelling, thundering through the flaring light, and as I fell, the radiance increasing, increasing, poured over me in waves of flame. Then I sank into the depths, and I heard the king in yellow, whispering to my soul, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. End of section 5
Section six of the King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eva Stays. The Yellow Sign. Let the red dawn surmise what we shall do when this blue starlight dies and all is through. One. There are so many things which are impossible to explain. Why should certain chords and music make me think of the brown and golden tints of autumn foliage? Why should the mass of St. Cecile bend my thoughts wandering among caverns whose walls blaze with ragged masses of virgin silver? What was it in the roar and turmoil of Broadway at six o'clock that flashed before my eyes a picture of a still Breton forest where sunlight filtered through a spring foliage and Sylvia bent, half curiously, half tenderly, over a small green lizard, murmuring, To think that this is also a little word of God. When I first saw the watchman, his back was toward me. I looked at him indifferently until he went into the church. I paid no more attention to him than I had to any other man who lounged through Washington Square that morning, and when I shut my window and turned back into my studio I had forgotten him. Late in the afternoon, the day being warm, I raised the window again and leaned out to get a sniff of air. A man was standing in the courtyard of the church, and I noticed him again with as little interest as I had that morning. I looked across the square to where the fountain was playing, and then— with my mind filled with the vague impression of trees, asphalt drives, and the moving groups of nursemaids and holiday-makers, I started to walk back to my easel. As I turned, my listless glance included the man below in the churchyard. His face was toward me now, and with a perfect involuntary movement I bent to see it. At the same moment he raised his head and looked at me. Instantly I thought of a coffin-worm. Whatever it was about the man that repelled me, I did not know, but the impression of a plump white grave worm was so intense and nauseating that I must have shown it in my expression, for he turned his puffy face away with a movement which made me think of a disturbed grub in a chestnut. I went back to my easel and motioned the model to resume her pose. After working a while, I was satisfied that I was spoiling what I had done as rapidly as possible, and I took up a palette knife and scraped the color out again. The flesh tones were sallow and unhealthy, and I did not understand how I could have painted such a sickly color onto a study which before had glowed with healthy tones. I looked at Tessie. She had not changed, and with clear flush of health dyed her necks and cheeks as I frowned. "'Is it something I've done?' she said. "'No. I've made a mess of this arm, and for the life of me I can't see how I came to paint such mud as that into the canvas,' I replied. "'Don't I pose well?' she insisted. "'Of course, perfectly. "'Then it's not my fault? "'No, it's my own. "'I am very sorry,' she said." I told her she could rest while I applied rag and turpentine to the plague spot on my canvas, and she went off to smoke a cigarette and look over the illustrations in the Curieur Francais. I did not know whether it was something in the turpentine or a defect in the canvas, but the more I scrubbed, the more that gangrene seemed to spread. I worked like a beaver to get it out, and yet the disease appeared to creep from limb to limb of the study before me. 
alarmed i stove to arrest it but now the colour on the breast changed and the whole figure seemed to absorb the infection as a sponge soaks up water vigorously i applied palette knife turpentine and scraper thinking all the time what a seance i should hold with duval who had sold me the canvas but soon i noticed that it was not the canvas which was defective nor yet the colours of edward it must be the turpentine i thought angrily or else my eyes have become so blurred and confused by the afternoon light that i can't see straight i called tassie the model she came and leaned over my chair blowing rings of smoke into the air what have you been doing to it she exclaimed nothing i growled it must be this turpentine what a horrible colour it is now she continued do you think my flesh resembles green cheese no i don't i said angrily did you ever know me to paint like that before no indeed well then it must be the turpentine or something she admitted she slipped on a japanese robe and walked to the window i scraped and rubbed until i was tired and finally picked up my brushes and hurled them through the canvas with forcible expression the tone alone of which reached tessie's ears nevertheless she promptly began that's it swear and act silly and ruin your brushes you have been three weeks on that study and now look what's the good of ripping the canvas what creatures artists are i felt about as much ashamed as i usually did after such an outbreak and i turned the ruined canvas to the wall tessie helped me clean my brushes and then danced away to dress from the screen she regaled me with bits of advice concerning whole or partial loss of temper until thinking perhaps i had been tormented sufficiently she came out to implore me to button her waist where she could not reach it on the shoulder everything went wrong from the time you came back from the window and talked about that horrid-looking man you saw in the churchyard she announced yes he probably bewitched the picture i said yawning i looked at my watch it's after six i know said tessie adjusting her hat before the mirror yes i replied i didn't mean to keep you so long i leaned out of the window but recoiled with disgust for the young man with the pasty face stood below in the churchyard tessie saw my gesture of disapproval and leaned from the window is that the man you don't like she whispered i nodded i can't see his face but he does look fat and soft some way or other she continued turning to look at me he reminds me of a dream an awful dream i once had or she mused looking down at her shapely shoes was it a dream after all how should i know i smiled tessie smiled in reply you were in it she said so perhaps you might know something about it tessie tessie i protested don't you dare flatter by saying that you dream about me but i did she insisted shall i tell you about it go ahead i replied lighting a cigarette tessie leaned back on the open window-sill and began very seriously one night last winter i was lying in bed thinking about nothing at all in particular i had been posing for you and i was tired out yet it seemed impossible for me to sleep i heard the bells in the city ring ten eleven and midnight i must have fallen asleep about midnight because i don't remember hearing the bells after that 
it seems to me that i had scarcely closed my eyes when i dreamed that something impelled me to go to the window i rose and raising the sash leaned out twenty-fifth street was deserted as far as i could see i began to be afraid everything outside seemed so so black and uncomfortable then the sounds of the wheels in the distance came to my ears and it seemed to me as though that was what i must wait for very slowly the wheels approached and finally i could make out a vehicle moving along the street it came nearer and nearer and when it passed beneath my window i saw it was a hearse then as i trembled with fear the driver turned and looked straight at me when i awoke i was standing by the open window shivering with cold but the black plumed hearse and the driver were gone i dreamed this dream again in march last and again awoke beside the open window last night the dream came again you remember how it was raining when i awoke standing at the open window my nightdress was soaked but where did i come into the dream i asked you you were in the coffin but you were not dead in the coffin yes how did you know could you see me no I only knew you were there. Had you been eating Welsh rarebits or lobster salad? I began laughing, but the girl interrupted me with a frightened cry. Hello, what's up? I said as she shrank back into the embrasure by the window. The, the man below in the churchyard. He drove the hearse. Nonsense, I said, but Tessie's eyes were wide with terror. I went to the window and looked out. The man was gone come tessie i urged don't be foolish you have posed too long you are nervous do you think i could forget that face she murmured three times i saw the hearse pass below my window and every time the driver turned and looked up at me oh his face was so white and and soft it looked dead it looked as if it had been dead a long time I induced the girl to sit down and swallow a glass of marsala. Then I sat down beside her and tried to give her some advice. "'Look here, Tassie,' I said. "'You go to the countryside for a week or two, and you'll have no more dreams about hearses. You pose all day, and when night comes your nerves are upset. You can't keep this up. Then again, instead of going to bed when your day's work is done, you run off to the picnics at Solzer's Park, or you go to El Dorado or Coney Island, and when you come down here next morning you are fagged out. There was no real hearse. There was a soft-shell crab dream. She smiled faintly. What about the man in the churchyard? Oh, he's only an ordinary, unhealthy, everyday creature. As true as my name is Tessie Reardon, I swear to you, Mr. Scott, that the face of the man below in the churchyard is the face of the man who drove the hearse. What of it? I said. It's an honest trade. Then you think I did see the hearse? Oh, I said diplomatically. If you really did, it might not be unlikely that the man below drove it. There is nothing in that. Tessie rose, unrolled her scented handkerchief, and taking a bit of gum from a knot in the hem, placed it in her mouth. Then, drawing on her glove, she offered me her hand with a frank, "'Good night, Mr. Scott,' and walked out. 2. 
the next morning thomas the bell-boy brought me the herald and a bit of news the church next door had been sold i thank heaven for it not that being a catholic i had any repugnance for the congregation next door but because my nerves were shattered by a blatant exhorter whose every word echoed through the aisle of the church as if it had been my own rooms and who insisted on his r's with a nasal persistence which revolted my every instinct then too there was a fiend in human shape an organist who reeled off some of the grand old hymns with an interpretation of his own and i longed for the blood of a creature who could pay the doxology with an amendment of minor chords which one hears only in the quartet of very young undergraduates i believe the minister was a good man but when he bellowed and the lord said on moses the lord is a man of war and the lord is his name my wrath shall wax hot and i will kill you with the sword i wondered how many centuries of purgatory it would take to atone for such a sin who bought the property i asked thomas nobody that i know sir they do say the gent what owns this ere amelton flats was looking at it he might be a buildin more studios i walked to the window the young man with the unhealthy face stood by the churchyard gate and at the mere sight of him the same overwhelming repugnance took possession of me by the way thomas i said who is that fellow down there thomas sniffed that there worm sir he's night watchman of the church sir it makes us me tired of sitting out all night on them steps and looking at you insultin like out of bunch's ed sir beg pardon sir go on thomas one night a comin ome with airy the other english boy i sees em sittin there on them steps we ad molly and john with us sir the two girls on tray service and he looks so insultin at us that i up and says what you lookin at you fat slug beg pardon sir that's how i says sir then ye don't say nothin and i says come out and i'll punch it put an ed then i opens the gate and goes in but ye don't say nothin only looks insultin like then i its him one but ugh is ed was that cold and mushy it didn't sicken you to touch him what did he do then i asked curiously him nothin and you thomas the young fellow flushed with embarrassment and smiled uneasily mr scott sir i ain't no coward and i can't make it out at all why i run i was in the fifth lancer sir bugler at tell el kabir and was shot by the wells you don't mean to say you ran away yes sir i run why that's just what i want to know sir i grab molly and run and the rest of us was as frightened as i but what were they frightened at thomas refused to answer for a while but now my curiosity was aroused about the repulsive young man below and i pressed him three years sojourn in america had not only modified thomas's cockney dialect but had given him the american's fear of ridicule you won't believe me mr scott sir yes i will you will laugh at me sir nonsense he hesitated well sir it's god's awful truth that when i it him he grabbed me wrist sir and when i twisted his soft mushy fist one of his fingers came off in the end the utter loathing and horror of thomas's face must have been reflected in my own for he added 
it's awful and and now when i see him i just go away it makes me ill when thomas had gone i went to the window the man stood beside the church railing with both hands on the gate but i hastily retreated to my easel again sickened and horrified for i saw that middle finger of his right hand was missing at nine o'clock tessie appeared and vanished behind the screen with mary good morning mr scott when she reappeared and taking her pose upon the model stand i started a new canvas much to her delight she remained silent as long as i was on the drawing but as soon as the scrape of the charcoal ceased and i took up my fixative she began to chatter oh i had such a lovely time last night we went to tony pastor's who are we i demanded oh maggie you know mr white's model and pinky mccormick we call her pinky because she's got that beautiful red hair you artists like so much and lizzie burt i sent a shower of spray from the fixative over the canvas and said well go on we saw kelly and baby barnes the skirt dancer and and all the rest i made a mash then you have gone back on me tessie she laughed and shook her head he's lizzie's burke's brother ed he's a perfect gentleman i felt constrained to give her some parental advice concerning mashing which she took with a bright smile oh i can take care of a strange mash she said examining her chewing gum but ed is different lizzie is my best friend then she related how ed had come back from the stocking mill in lowell massachusetts to find her and lizzie grown up and what an accomplished young man he was and how he thought nothing of squandering half a dollar for ice cream and oysters to celebrate his entry as a clerk into the woolen department of macy's before she finished i began to paint and she resumed the pose smiling and chattering like a sparrow by noon i had the study fairly well rubbed in and tessie came to look at it that's better she said i thought so too and ate my lunch with a satisfied feeling that all was going well tessie spread her lunch on a drawing-table opposite me and we drank our claret from the same bottle and lighted our cigarettes from the same match i was very attached to tessie i had watched her shoot up into a slender but exquisitely formed woman from a frail and awkward child she had posed for me during the last three years and among all my models she was my favorite it would have troubled me very much indeed had she become tough or fly as the phrase goes but i never noticed any deterioration of her manner and felt at heart that she was all right she and i never discussed morals at all and i had no intention of doing so partly because i had none myself and partly because i knew she would do what she liked in spite of me still i did hope she would steer clear of complications because i wished her well and then also i had a selfish desire to retain the best model i had i knew that mashing as she termed it had no significance with girls like tessie and that such things in america did not resemble in the least the same things in paris yet having lived with my eyes open i knew that somebody would take tessie away some day in one manner or another and though i professed myself that marriage was nonsense i sincerely hoped that in this case there would be a priest at the end of the vista i am a catholic when i listen to high mass when i sign myself i feel that everything including myself is more cheerful and when i confess it does me good a man who lives as much alone as i do must confess to somebody then again sylvia was catholic 
and it was reason enough for me. But I was speaking of Tassie, which is very different. Tassie also was Catholic, and much more devout than I. So taking it, all in all, I had little to fear for my pretty model until she should fall in love. But then, I knew that fate alone would decide her future for her, and I prayed inwardly that fate would keep her away from men like me, and throw into her past nothing but Ed Burks and Jimmy McCormick. Bless her sweet face. Tessie sat blowing rings of smoke up to the ceiling and tinkling the ice in her tumbler. "'Do you know that I also had a dream last night?' I observed. "'Not about that man,' she laughed. "'Exactly. A dream similar to yours, only much worse.' It was foolish and thoughtless of me to say this, but you know how little tact the average painter has. I must have fallen asleep about ten o'clock, I continued, and after a while I dreamt that I woke. So plainly did I hear the midnight bells, the wind in the tree branches, and the whistle of steamers from the bay, that even now I can scarcely believe that I was not awake. I seemed to be lying in a box which had a glass cover, Dimly I saw the street lamps as I passed, for I must tell you, Tessie, the box in which I reclined appeared to lie in a cushioned wagon, which jolted me over a stony pavement. After a while I became impatient and tried to move, but the box was too narrow, my hands were crossed on my breast, so I could not raise them to help myself. I listened, and then tried to calm, my voice gone. I could hear the trample of horses attached to the wagon, and even the breathing of the driver. Then another sound broke upon my ears like the raising of a window-sash. I managed to turn my head a little, and I found I could look, not only through the glass cover of my box, but also through the glass panes in the side of the covered vehicle. I saw houses, empty and silent, with neither light nor life, about any of them excepting one. In that house a window was open on the first floor, and a figure all in white stood down looking into the street. It was you. Tessie had turned her face away from me and leaned on the table with her elbow. I could see your face, I resumed, and it seemed to me to be very sorrowful. Then we passed on and turned into a narrow black lane. Presently the horses stopped. I waited and waited, closing my eyes with fear and impatience, but all was silent as the grave. After what seemed to me hours, I began to feel uncomfortable. A sense that somebody was close to me made me unclose my eyes. Then I saw the white face of the hearse driver looking at me through the coffin lid. A sob from Tessie interrupted me. She was trembling like a leaf. I saw I had made an ass of myself and attempted to repair the damage. Why, Tess? I said. I only told you this to show what influence your story might have on another person's dream. You don't suppose I really lay in a coffin, do you? What are you trembling for? Don't you see that your dream and my unreasonable dislike for that inoffensible watchman of the church simply set my brain working as soon as I fell asleep? She laid her head between her arms and sobbed as if her heart would break. What a precious triple donkey I had made of myself! But I was about to break my record. I went over and put my arm about her. Tessie, dear, forgive me, I said. I had no business to frighten you with such nonsense. You are too sensible a girl, too good a Catholic to believe in dreams. Her hand tightened upon mine, and her head fell back upon my shoulder. But she still trembled, and I petted her and comforted her. 
Come, Tess, open your eyes and smile. Her eyes opened with a slow, languid movement and met mine, but their expression was so queer that I hastened to reassure her again. It's all humbug, Tessie. You surely are not afraid that any harm will come to you because of that. No, she said, but her scarlet lips quivered. Then what's the matter? Are you afraid? Yes, not for myself. For me, then, I demanded gaily. For you, she murmured in a voice almost inaudible. I, I care for you. At first I started to laugh. But when I understood her, a shock passed through me, and I sat like one turned to stone. This was the crowning bit of idiocy I had committed. During the moment which elapsed between her reply and my answer, I thought of a thousand responses to that innocent confession. I could pass it by with a laugh. I could misunderstand her and assure her as to my health. I could simply point out that it was impossible she could love me, but my reply was quicker than my thoughts and I might think and think now when it was too late, for I had kissed her on the mouth. That evening I took my usual walk in Washington Park, pondering over the occurrences of the day. I was thoroughly committed. There was no back out now, and I stared the future straight in the face. I was not good, not even scrupulous, but I had no idea of deceiving either myself or Tessie. The one passion of my life lay buried in the sunlit forests of Brittany. Was it buried forever? Hope cried no. For three years I had been listening to the voice of hope, and for three years I had waited for a footstep on my threshold. Had Sylvia forgotten? No, cried hope. I said I was no good. That is true, but still I was not exactly a comic opera villain. I had led an easy-going, reckless life, taking what invited me of pleasure, deploring, and sometimes bitterly regretting consequences. In one thing alone, except my painting, was I serious, and that was something which laid hidden, if not lost, in the Breton forest. It was too late for me to regret what had occurred during the day. Whatever it had been, pity, a sudden tenderness for sorrow, or the more brutal instinct of gratified vanity— it was all the same now, and unless I wished to bruise an innocent heart, my path lay marked before me. The fire and strength, the depth of passion of a love which I had never even suspected, though all my imagined experience in the world left me no alternative but to respond or send her away. Whether because I am so cowardly about giving pain to others, or whether it was that I have little of the gloomy Puritan in me, I do not know but I shrank from disclaiming responsibility for that thoughtless kiss, and in fact had no time to do so before the gates of her heart opened, and the flood poured forth. Others who habitually do their duty and find a sullen satisfaction in making themselves and everyone else unhappy might have withstood it. I did not. I dared not. After the storm had abated, I did tell her that she might have better loved Ed Burke and worn a plain gold ring, but she would not hear of it and I thought perhaps as long as she decided to love somebody she could not marry, it had better be me. I, at least, could treat her with an intelligent affection. Whenever she became tired of her infatuation, she could go none the worse for it, for I was decided on that point, although I knew how hard it would be. I remembered the usual termination of platonic liaisons, and thought how disgusted I had been whenever I had heard of one. 
i knew i was undertaking a great deal for so unscrupulous a man as i was and i dreamed the future but never for one moment did i doubt that she was safe with me had it been anybody but tessie i should not have bothered my head about scruples but it did not occur to me to sacrifice tessie as i would have sacrificed a woman of the world i looked the future squarely in the face and saw several probable endings to their affair she would either tire of the whole thing or become so unhappy that i should have either to marry her or go away if i married her we would be unhappy i with a wife unsuited to me and she with a husband unsuitable for any woman for my past life could scarcely entitle me to marry if i went away she might either fall ill recover and marry some eddie burke or she might recklessly or deliberately go and do something foolish on the other hand if she tired of me then her whole life would be before her with beautiful vistas of eddie burke's and marriage rings and twins and harlem flats and heaven knows what as i strolled along through the trees by the washington arch i decided she should find a substantial friend in me anyway and the future could take care of itself then i went into the house and put on my evening dress for the little faintly perfumed note on my dresser said have a cab at the stage door at eleven and the note was signed edith carmichael metropolitan theatre i took supper that night or rather we took supper miss carmichael and i at solari's and the dawn was just beginning to gild the cross on the memorial church as i entered washington square after leading edith at brunswick there was not a soul in the park as i passed along the trees and took the walk which led from the garibaldi statue to hamilton apartment house but as i passed the churchyard i saw a figure sitting on the stone steps in spite of myself a chill crept over me at the sight of the white puffy face and i hastened to pass then he said something which might have been addressed to me or merely have been a mutter to himself but a sudden furious anger flamed up within me that such a creature should address me for an instant i felt like wheeling about and smashing my stick over his head but i walked on and entering the hamilton went to my apartment for some time i tossed about the bed trying to get the sound of his voice out of my ears but could not it filled my head that muttering sound like thick oily smoke from a fat rendering vat or an odour of noisome decay and as i lay and tossed about the voice in my ears seemed more distinct and i began to understand the words he had muttered they came to me slowly as if i had forgotten them and at last i could make some sense out of the sounds it was this have you found the yellow sign have you found the yellow sign have you found the yellow sign i was furious what did he mean by that then with a curse upon him and his i rolled over and went to sleep but when i awoke later i looked pale and haggard for i had dreamed the dream of the night before and it troubled me more than i cared to think i dressed and went down into my studio tessie sat by the window but as i came in she rose and put both arms around my neck for an innocent kiss she looked so sweet and dainty that i kissed her again and then sat down before the easel hello where is the study i began yesterday i asked tessie looked conscious but did not answer 
I began to hunt among the piles of canvases, saying, Hurry up, Tessie, and get ready. You must take advantage of the morning light. When, at last, I gave up the search among the other canvases and turned around the room for the missing study, I noticed Tessie standing by the screen with her clothes still on. What's the matter? I asked. Don't you feel well? Yes. Then hurry. Do you want me to pose as, as I have always posed? Then I understood. Here was a new complication. I had lost, of course, the best new model I have ever seen. I looked at Tessie. Her face was scarlet. Alas, alas, we have eaten of the tree of knowledge, and Eden and native innocence were dreams of the past. I mean for her. I suppose she noticed the disappointment on my face, for she said, I will post, if you wish. The study is behind the screen here, where I have put it. Now, I said, we will begin something new. I went into my wardrobe and picked out a Moorish costume which fairly blazed with tinsel. It was a genuine costume, and Tessie retired to the screen with it enchanted. When she came forth again, I was astonished. Her long black hair was bound above her forehead with a circlet of turquoise, and the ends curled about her glittering girdle. Her feet were encased in the embroidered pointed slippers and the skirt of her costume, curiously wrought with arabesque in silver fell to her ankles the deep metallic blue vest embroidered with silver and the short morocco jacket spangled and sewn with turquoise became her wonderfully she came up to me and held up her face smiling i slipped my hand into my pocket and drawing out a gold chain with a cross attached dropped it over her head it's yours tassie mine she faltered yours now go and pose then with a radiant smile she ran behind the screen and presently reappeared with a little box on which was written my name i had intended to give it to you when i went home tonight she said but i can't wait now i opened the box on the pink cotton lay inside a clasp of black onyx on which was inlaid a curious symbol or letter in gold it was neither arabic nor chinese nor, as I found afterwards, did it belong to any human script. "'It's all I had to give you for a keepsake,' she said timidly. I was annoyed, but I told her how much I should prize it and promised to wear it always. She fastened it on my coat beneath the lapel. "'How foolish, Tess, to go and buy me such a beautiful thing as this,' I said. "'I did not buy it,' she laughed. "'Where did you get it?' Then she told me how she found it one day while coming— from the aquarium in the battery, how she had advertised it and watched the papers, but at last gave up all hopes of finding the owner. That was last winter, she said, the very day I had the first horrid dream about the hearse. I remembered my dream of the previous night, but said nothing, and presently my charcoal was flying over a new canvas, and Tessie stood motionless on the model stand. Three the day following was a disastrous one for me while moving a framed canvas from one easel to another my foot slipped on the polished floor and i fell heavily on both wrists they were so badly sprained that it was useless to attempt to hold a brush and i was obliged to wander about the studio glaring at unfinished drawings and sketches until despair seized me and i sat down to smoke and twiddle my thumbs with rage the rain blew against the windows and rattled on the roof of the church, driving me into a nervous fit with its intermittable patter. 
tessie sat sewing by the window and every now and then raised her head and looked at me with such innocent compassion that i began to feel ashamed of my irritation and looked about for something to occupy me i had read all the papers and all the books in the library but for the sake of something to do i went to the bookcases and shoved them open with my elbow i knew every volume by its colour and examined them all passing slowly about the library and whistling to keep up my spirits i was turning to go into the dining-room when my eye fell upon a book bound in serpent skin standing in a corner of the top shelf of the last bookcase i did not remember it and from the floor could not decipher the pale lettering on the back so i went to the smoking-room and called tessie she came in from the studio and climbed up to reach the book what is it i asked the king in yellow i was dumbfounded who had placed it there how had it come in my rooms i had long ago decided that i should never open that book and nothing on earth could have persuaded me to buy it fearful lest curiosity might tempt me to open it i had never even looked at it in bookstores if i ever had had any curiosity to read it the awful tragedy of young castine whom i knew prevented me from exploring its wicked pages i had always refused to listen to any description of it and indeed nobody ever ventured to discuss the second part aloud so i had absolutely no knowledge of what those leaves might reveal i stared at the poisonous mottled binding as i would at a snake don't touch it tessie i said come down of course my admonition was enough to arouse her curiosity and before i could prevent it she took the book and laughing danced off into the studio with it i called to her but she slipped away with a tormenting smile at my helpless hands and i followed her with some impatience tessie i cried entering the library listen i am serious put that book away i do not wish you to open it the library was empty I went into both drawing-rooms, then into the bedrooms, laundry, kitchen, and finally returned to the library and began a systematic search. She had hidden herself so well that it was half an hour later when I discovered her crouching white and silent by the lattice window in the storeroom above. At the first glance I saw she had been punished for her foolishness. The king in yellow lay at her feet, but the book was open at the second part. I looked at Tessie and saw it was too late she had opened the king in yellow then i took her by the hand and led her into the studio she seemed dazed and when i told her to lie down on the sofa she obeyed me without a word after a while she closed her eyes and her breathing became regular and deep but i could not determine whether or not she slept for a long while i sat silently beside her but she neither stirred nor spoke and at last i rose and entering the unused storeroom took the book in my least injured hand it seemed heavy as lead but i carried it into the studio again and sitting down on the rug beside the sofa opened it and read it through from beginning to end when faint with excess of my emotions i dropped the volume and leaned warily back against the sofa tessie opened her eyes and looked at me we had been speaking for some time in a dull, monotonous strain before I realized that we were discussing the king in yellow. Oh, the sin of writing such words, words which are clear as crystal, limpid and musical as bubbling springs, 
words which sparkle and glow like the poisoned diamonds of the medicis oh the wickedness the hopeless damnation of the soul who could fascinate and paralyze human creatures with such words words understood by the ignorant and wise alike words which are more precious than jewels more soothing than music more awful than death we talked on unmindful of the gathering shadows and she was begging me to throw away the class of black onyx quaintly inlaid with what we now knew to be the yellow sign i never shall know why i refuse though even at this hour here in my bedroom as i write this confession i should be glad to know what it was that prevented me from tearing the yellow sign from my breast and casting it into the fire i am sure i wished to do so and yet tessie pleaded with me in vain night fell and the hours dragged on but still we murmured to each other of the king and the pallid mask and midnight sounded from the misty spires and the fog-wrapped city we spoke of hester and of casilda while outside the fog rolled against the blank window panes as the cloud waves rolled and break on the shores of halley the house was very silent now and not a sound came up from the misty streets tessie lay among the cushions her face a gray blot in the gloom but her hands were clasped in mine and i knew that she knew and read my thoughts as I read hers, for we had understood the mystery of the Hyades, and the phantom of truth was laid. Then, as we answered each other, swiftly, silently, thought on thought, the shadows stirred in the gloom about us, and far in the distant streets we heard a sound. Nearer and nearer it came, the dull crunching of wheels, nearer and yet nearer, and now, outside before the door, it ceased, and I dragged myself to the window, and saw a black-plumed hearse. The gate below opened and shut, and I crept shaking to my door and bolted it, but I knew no bolts, no locks, could keep that creature out who was coming for the yellow sign. And now I heard him moving very softly along the hall. Now he was at the door, and the bolts rotted at his touch. Now he had entered, with eyes starting from my head i peered into the darkness but when he came into the room i did not see him it was only when i felt him envelop me in his cold soft grasp that i cried out and struggled with deadly fury but my hands were useless and he tore the onyx clasp from my coat and struck me full in the face then as i fell i heard tessie's soft cry and her spirit fled and even while falling i longed to follow her for i knew that the king in yellow had opened his tattered mantle and there was only gone to cry to now i could tell more but i cannot see what help it will be to the world as for me i am past human help or hope as i lie here writing careless even whether or not i die before i finish i can see the doctor gathering up his powders and files with a vague gesture to the good priest beside me which i understand they will be very curious to know the tragedy they of the outside world who write books and print millions of newspapers but i shall write no more and the father confessor will seal my last words with the seal of sanctity when his holy office is done 
they of the outside world may send their creatures into wrecked homes and death-smitten firesides and their newspapers will batten on blood and tears but with me their spies must halt before the confessional they know that tessie is dead and that i am dying they know how the people in the house aroused by an infernal scream rushed into my rooms and found one living and two dead but they do not know what i shall tell them now they do not know that the doctor said as he pointed to a horrible decomposed heap on the floor the livid corpse of the watchman from the church i have no theory no explanation that man must have been dead for months i think i am dying i wish the priest would end of section six What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.